it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. The list Clinton stole was a decoy. That's correct. The actual list is secure at Langley. Galitzin was a lightning rod. He was one of ours. This whole operation was a moment. This whole operation was a moment. Yeah. The mole's deep inside. And like you said, You survived, so why don't we quietly get out of here onto a plane? I can understand you're very upset. Kittredge, you've never seen me very upset. OSS listeners, in 1996, a brilliant team of Hollywood luminaries led by Tom Cruise and Brian De Palma adapted a classic television serial to cinematic acclaim. 22 years later, Mission Impossible lives on as the longest-running and most impressive franchise in 21st century blockbuster cinema. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to spend the next two hours with Luke Littleboy and Fletcher Walton as they infiltrate the series, examining the context of its genesis and the magnificent spectacle of its latest iteration. As always, should you or any member of your group have comments or questions, head to unsensationalshot.com. This podcast will self-destruct in five seconds. Mission Impossible Fallout. That's the, it's the fallout one. from the one before. It's the first time one's led into another directly, in a really meaningful way. And certainly at the same time, it's kept the same director. So this is the fallout of the previous. And a little like Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace, or as Mark yeah. Kermode calls it, Question of Sport. Quantum of Solace is my favourite Bond <laughs> Of this century. No one you. else has any time for it. I like Matthew Almarek. He makes to a good To me, it value. only works. It only works if you watch them back to back. If you watch Casino and Quantum back to back, then it works. Yeah. If you watch it in isolation, it is a tremendous well of disappointment <laughs> and, and uh, an overall underwhelming feeling. The other thing with Quantum is, unfortunately, they've... The problem that's plagued a lot of these bonds of the past 20, 30 years is that it's always lacked the the Blofeld character. Uh, I want to say the syndicate. What are the baddies called? Oh, Smush. Um, <laughs> Smush. Yeah, that's their name what? in the 70s. Oh, yeah. Okay, you could be right. Yeah, a Spectre. <laughs> Spectre is what I was going to yeah, go oh, for. Oh, okay. So, so, yeah, you've got the quantum... You had Quantum in Quantum of Solace, which was sort of a Spectre light replacement and then of course they finally managed to settle the issue of the rights so then they made they finally got to make the spectre film and retcon the whole thing by saying oh yeah these people were really behind it do you remember the people from sean connery times yeah inspector i noticed they all but glossed over matthew amalric entirely 
barely showed him. Yeah. They had a photographic rogues gallery at one point of the baddies Bond had met, but Matthew Almerich was in there for <laughs> two seconds somewhat. It was For me, it was very yeah. noticeable because, as I said, conceptually, I find him an interesting baddie and well-executed, a baddie who lacks physical strength. And as a result, the only attack he can use on Bond when it finally does come to fisticuffs is a berserker rage. I also thought Olga Kurilenko was, I thought, notably good in that. Purists would argue that they're not meant to have parity, the mm. the Bond girl and Bond himself. But I liked mm. that. And in terms of a new direction, I felt it was sufficiently subtle, but well executed. But we're not talking about Bond this week, although I think it's... That's useful context to consider that concurrent with Tom Cruise's Mission Impossible franchise, Bond has enjoyed a return, a resurrection, a resurgence, and then a reboot. And Mission Impossible, the original Mission Impossible, was released only a year after GoldenEye, so it, presumably it was well into production. And twice since, instalments of each franchise have been released in the same year, although they never go directly head-to-head because Mission is a summer event picture. Bond is always released in the autumn, October, November. Absolutely. It has a it has a 90s espionage feel. We'll get into that in a moment. Of course, Mission Impossible 2 in 2000 directly stole from GoldenEye as well. It has a car chase uh, between um, Tom Cruise and... Um, oh, good God, what's her name from Westworld? Um, uh, oh, Tandy Newton. Suddenly, yeah, Tandy Newton, yeah. exactly. They have a, a fun car chase where they, they're flirting with each other but driving really, really fast in separate cars. <laughs> so that's uh, directly from GoldenEye. So yeah, it owes a little bit to, to 90s era Bond, for sure. The ways in which we'd like to think about Mission Impossible, first let's look at it as a television adaptation. Mm-hmm. Because that's been lost to the ages. Now, I grew well, up with yeah, Mission it... Impossible to an extent. When I was Me too. four, five, six years old... I was watching repeats, probably on BBC on Two, Chan- maybe on Channel Four. I remember. I, I thought it was Channel Four. Do you, you think it was Channel Four as well? Someone else thought it was Channel Four, but I fi- I, th- I feel it was a it, week. W- wasn't it a toss up between whether you were going to get reruns of Mission Impossible or reruns of Airwolf? I can't. I don't know if that was ITV. <laughs> I, do I don't remember. No, Airwolf was ITV. Th- you're right. Airwolf and Streethawk were ITV and Knight Rider. I was really into Mission Impossible as a as a kid. The TV show. Uh, I was really into spies in general and yeah. espionage. That was one of the, th- the the things I went through as a kid. Definitely one of the phases. And then when they were making a Mission Impossible movie, I flipped out. And I went to go and see it for my eighth birthday. And for that reason, I have a lot of nostalgia for it because it felt like the first truly grown-up film I went to go and see. And um, or maybe it was my ninth birthday. I suppose I would have been nine in 96. Maybe it was my ninth. Yeah, it felt like the first grown-up birthday. And also, you know, I got to take all my friends to it. And that was cool. Man, I, re- I remember being so excited and so terribly distraught. And I do mean this. This upset me that the my beloved... Jim Phelps, the main protagonist of the TV show, was, spoiler alert, turned out to be the the big bad of the first Mission Impossible film. And that genuinely upset me. That really bummed me out. It upset the entire cast as well. That's why nobody turned up in it, because that was a hallmark of these pictures. Now, that's the way in which I wanted to drag it into context. Very few people that watch Mission Impossible now really remember or are sensitive to its reputation as a television series. It was something that my mother watched and then she shared with me late 80s, early 90s. And all I really remember is the fuse lit on the opening credits with the theme tune played over it. And the reason I remember that is at five years old in my class, we each had a jotter in which you were meant to 
provide an illustration of your evening with a couple of lines of text and me and my mum would do it together and we wrote we watched Mission Impossible and I drew the fuse <laughs> I drew the fuse with the fire the theme tune was always there even when we were young before the franchise the film franchise the theme tune was always a shorthand in a lot of sketches mm. and comedies for our characters going to start rolling under tables or jumping over desks or whatever like this this is mission impossible yeah. it was a you might not have, it was a bit like the jaws theme right even though you as a kid you might not have seen jaws you you know that that theme means shark music yeah, the plot by Lalo Schifrin, it has been used for everything over the last 40 years, probably in Wayne's World or Wayne's World 2. And I think sometimes that kernel is all that's required to uh, keep it alive in the public consciousness and essentially that's true. kick off a franchise. Now, the marketplace in which Mission Impossible began was one that quickly saw a proliferation of TV adaptations and it's basically 60s television. I, it's the baby boomer stuff. Yeah, yeah. My conceit of this is always that the commissioning was done by those that watched it as children and young adults and they were pitching it to an audience what i call the reality bites audience a hip ironic audience of 20 somethings late teens and 20 somethings in the 90s who had caught up with all of these shows in reruns and liked them ironically or sarcastically or had genuine affection for them now the first one i think was the first big hit was the fugitive now going way back Dragnet showed that it could be done in 87. Danny Aykroyd and mm -hmm. Tom Hanks, mid-budget and did a decent business. I think it's underappreciated. But that was a long time, comparatively, before the real boom. Then it was the very early 90s that Barry Sonnenfeld directed the Addams Family pictures. The f now, And I think this is where executives get their ideas. So the Addams Family was a short-running TV series, live action. It was a New Yorker cartoon first. Yeah, New Yorker cartoon, then the series, only run a couple of seasons. But that, I tell you what, that had a great theme tune as well. Yeah, and, and that that's theme it. tune probably and was in the public consciousness. This is it. It was That was the production. It was the Addams Family movie. The first movie went into production because of the theme tune's longevity in the cultural zeitgeist. Right, so I think it was Barry Diller who is profiled in Easy Riders and Raging Bulls. Barry Diller was on a car journey with the producer of the original Addams Family movie, as it happened, Scott Rudin. One of their kids started up with the theme tune, diddle-da, diddle-da, and Rudin immediately knew that there was money to be made. They went into production a week or two later. The first film, which I think is far inferior to the sequel, Joni Cusack is magnificent in that second one. The second in, Adams, fam Adams yeah. Family Values. Yeah, yeah. The second Adams Family is fantastic. One of um, the films Lex and I watch most Halloweens is Adams Family Values. So the first one cost 25. It took 190 mil. A sequel cannot be averted with numbers like that. Of course... Second one cost twice as much, barely made its budget back, but I should imagine on retail it did very well. I'm surprised at those numbers because I remember watching it, renting it on video as a kid a lot. As far as I was concerned, Values was as... Uh, it, it, I was as conscious and aware of it as the first film. So I'm quite, maybe it's just because of the age, I guess. If it was 93, I guess... I was probably catching that on video more. I'm very, very surprised to look at the box office. I didn't realise it, it had only scraped by. the third. They did do a third one with a different cast, didn't they? And yeah. It went straight to video. It retained Christopher right. Hart, who plays the hand. Things stayed the same. The TV adaptations boom was the first observable trend in modern cinema that I, that, that I was there for from the beginning. The Fugitive was the first super smash. 
based mm. on a series from the 60s. And we'll, we'll tick these off and chat a little about each of them if we fancy it. So The Fugitive came out in 93 and had its unnecessary sequel in 98. Fugitive cost 44, took 368 mega hit. Even the sequel made twice its budget. Um, when we talk mm. about budget on The Electronic Labyrinth, Luke and I are not statisticians and neither are we accountants. So we'll be talking are about we... gross rather than net. And I've no idea on the advertising spend on most of these. Uh, on no, a modern exactly. film, if it costs, if production costs on a 2018 picture 150, you could add another hundred in advertising and promotion. We're not going to do that. It, it makes it far too complicated. And Hollywood accounting means that no film, quite famously, when Winston Groom sued the makers of Forrest Gump for the profits that he never got, Hollywood accounting showed how a picture that was made for about 50 million and which grossed north of 600 could be shown to have lost money there's the general rule of thumb of, he used to sort of double the budget to say okay that's probably what it costs with marketing but mm. i think i think even the past 10 15 years that hasn't really been the case um i think there's plenty of films there's plenty of films that were made for hardly anything and uh, horror films for example and then the marketing is you know s- several times the, the the budget so oh yeah well i don't yeah. know mate without going into every you know without getting the books <laughs> out in front of me yeah. um i don't know how, what these what these films made best examples are going to be blair witch and get out on that anyway mm. getting back to it so as luke as we've said it's the baby boomers that are commissioning this stuff that are giving it the green light and they're hoping for a, a kind of ironic reappraisal or a nostalgic uh, fond remembrance of reruns of the Beverly Hillbillies and the Flintstones and Maverick and the Brady you, Bunch, and that takes us up what... to Mission Impossible. So I noticed that it was it was Warner that during this period made the best decisions. I don't know if I don't know if they owned the properties or not, but Maverick, for instance, which uh, cost seventy five. Yeah, it was a big big Mel Gibson uh, vehicle. Maverick took one hundred eighty three worldwide on a budget of seventy five mil. It is a big budget for its time. Speed only cost thirty and took more domestically and took more worldwide. But the seventy five spent on Maverick is dwarfed. In comparison to what Jim Cameron was up to, unsurprisingly, he was once again making the most expensive film of all time in True Lies. But that was at a time when each film Jim Cameron produced was inevitably the most expensive film of all time, and each film that Jim Cameron released was inevitably the biggest film of all time. And Titanic and Avatar are still number one and number two, unadjusted. Still but we'll begin the Cameron love in another time. Getting back to Maverick, the box office was 183, and Warner did very well on these. Now, it's during that period, its clunker was the Avengers. They spent 60 on that. It took only three quarters, and as you can imagine, as we've said, it was more likely a loss of 50 million. However, they persevered, and it didn't. The, the quality of the pictures never mattered. Wild Wild West cost 170, which is mm. eye-watering for its time. But took 222. Again, we probably down to promotion cost, lost money, but it still mm. bested its production budget. Scooby Doo, they made two pictures out of that. The first, 84, mm. took 275. The second, 25, took 181. Mm. And the, the cycle was just about at its end as we entered the new century. Around 2004, Starsky and Hutch was another Warner, cost 60, took 170. So there is bank in this. But by that time, uh, by the time of Starsky and Hutch, and particularly Bewitched by Nora Ephron, there is a self-reflexivity about the pictures. 
Uh, a wink. Uh, yeah, rather than a nudging wink. These films have become entirely self-referential. Bewitched is about a remake of Bewitched. And Starsky knowing. and Hutch is then Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson, isn't it? So it's just out yeah. and out. I'm going to stop short of saying parody. It's not a parody of it, but tongue so firmly in cheek, you've probably bitten into it and there's blood coming out around your mouth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Warner was proving that there was a lot of money to be made on these. At the same time, Universal, Bilko with Steve Martin by Jonathan Lynn, cost 39, didn't make its budget back. They followed that with an adaptation of Leave It to Beaver and, and McHale's Navy, both of which have no brand recognition outside of the US. Uh, Leave It to Beaver lost five million minimum. Mikhail's Navy, uh, which is Tom Arnold in a s- down periscope, is Kelsey Grammer in a submarine. Mikhail's Navy is Tom Arnold on a battleship. Cost forty two. Took four point five in this country. Went straight to video. They also Universal were also behind Dudley Do Right, which lost at least sixty mil. Also behind The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle, seventy six. Took thirty five. But so I, I hope that's given some context into the marketplace into which Mission Impossible plunged, a marketplace that had been proven, especially with the Fugitive, the Beverly Hillbillies and the Flintstones, had been proven to be receptive to essentially, oh, yeah, I think I saw this when I was nine. But it's got mm. what we used to talk about with Titanic. It's got a multi-generational appeal. 20-somethings mm. will go because it's kind of lame but cool and they remember it kind of from 15 years ago. And their parents will go along because they genuinely appreciated it and grew up with it. The most obscure, I think, is the Mod Squad, which I remember coming out and going straight to video over here. By that point, ridiculous amounts have been spent on minor properties. 50 million mm. spent on that. It only took 15.4. And I think it's... Well, by my... that point, it's just a race to the bottom, isn't it? Let's face it. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. What, what properties are left and... And the, the, like, the mega budgeting of Maverick and Mission Impossible is gone but instead moderate amounts of 40 to 60 million are being spent on properties which will never return that amount. My favourite Martian, I think, is the Nadir. Again, zero brand recognition outside of the US. Mm. Cost 65, took 36.8. You would think that the uh, the cycle had w- would run out much more quickly with failures like that, but it was Charlie's Angels that kept it ticking over. I remember going to see that and in the opening scene, one of the angels is dressed up as someone who is played by LL Cool J, because it's like Mission Impossible wearing masks constantly and he's on, yeah. a, he's on a jet plane watching an adaptation TJ Hooker the movie and makes right. an ironic, sarcastic comment about TV adaptations which, you, you know, um, admission is not absolution in that case, mm. and Charlie's Angels is a bad film Charlie's Angels takes at least an hour to do anything. And then the last 20, 25 minutes, Sam Rockwell dances briefly. You've got, you got Bill Murray. Yeah, the, um... yeah having a, a terrible time with Lucy Liu on set. A bit, uh, you know. Yeah. I also consider that the wilderness years for Bill Murray, because uh, it's that and wild things and uh, Osmosis Jones before his indie renaissance, of course. He'd done Rushmore by then, but Tenenbaums was to come, mm. uh, Broken Flowers was to come. It was just short of national treasure status yeah. at that point. And we didn't mention Lost in Space either. I, I thought you might come up with that one yourself. I thought that might have been important to you. Uh, no, it was <laughs> it was a bad film, and I knew it was yeah. bad at the time. If you want to go back to 1998, there was two films out that year. One was Lost in Space, one was The Avengers, 
And it was the Avengers that I was the most excited about for a couple of reasons. The Avengers, not the US Marvel Avengers, of course, but the British John Steed, Emma Peel Avengers of uh, 60s British TV. That was, I mean, I can see why Warner Brothers made it. It was the first uh, major kind of um, UK export to the States that was then kind of sold in syndication and that kind of thing. So it was a really big deal. And um, I was excited for that one because on a Friday night, I used to go around my friend Jack's house uh, we were both into spies together, hence why eventually we used to we'd go and watch the first Mission Impossible film for my birthday. Uh, we were really into that, all that stuff. So we were into the Avengers. We were also into like Randall and Hopkirk, deceased. Uh, we yeah. were into on on a Friday night watching these reruns, and we were allowed to stay up a little bit later on a Friday until I don't know eight p.m. or something because we were very young, and uh, nine o'clock, wherever it might have been, and we were allowed to have uh, kind of like naughty snacks like Pringles. So this was a highlight of the week for us. And uh, we saw the Avengers, and uh, I was ex- and I was then excited about the film adaptation because, of course, I'm a big Madness fan as well. And I was as a kid; they were the first band I was truly passionate about. And Suggs was doing the theme song for it, and uh, I got a feeling that it was going to be bad because um, you know when uh, in marketing, uh, people uh, the marketers refer to the film as. The motion picture event of the year. I always think, <laughs> I don't think anyone's ever said that about a film that's worth going to see. And I do remember <laughs> Suggs being interviewed on, I think, This Morning with Richard and Judy, where um, they said, and he was performing the theme song for the Avengers, I Am. I am a man, I do what I can, I am alive. It was <laughs> it's a funky little song. But um, I remember being interviewed on the telly uh, with Richard and Judy, and I think he said something like, yeah, I think they play it, uh, in the credits when it says uh, thank you for not smoking please make your way out the cinema <laughs> <That's>, uh, <laughs> they play it then and I thought then yeah this is this is a film that's gone badly like they obviously got someone to do a theme song and then they didn't want to have it in the film and uh, I since have learned over the years that one of the reasons the Avengers makes no sense whatsoever whilst you're watching it with all the double crossing and the subplots it's almost like you miss something it's because it went through such extensive re-editing, reshoots, whatever. It's funny, these days we know about it all on the internet, don't we? When something's being reshot or mm. someone's had to come in and try and save it. Those days you didn't, you weren't really aware. All you were aware was when the marketing hit and you were told it was the motion of the picture event <laughs> of the year and you had to go and see it. So yeah, 98 was The Avengers for me and I was really disappointed by it. It was one of the first films I got on Sky Box Office pay-per-view along with the X-Files film. Um, but Lost in Space, I knew was bad. I had no love for it. I remember collecting the little free gifts in the in Frosties and stuff in cereal. Yeah. But there was something in my heart of hearts from the trailers and what I'd seen that told me it wasn't there. I don't think I ever I ever bought even as a kid Matt LeBlanc in it as a leading man. I don't think that helped. I don't think he did either. He's made so few films. It's clear that he has no interest in cinema. I don't know what interest he has in television, but he's and that's not to diminish what he does well. But it's notable that he's never really bothered with films. And that his, his sort of role renaissance that he's got now with uh, the British sitcom episodes, it's a sort of ironic self-referential thing as well. He's playing a, a terrible version of himself. You know, he seems more happy with that than coming up yeah. with uh, a new character to play, as it were. And even during Friends, his cameos in Charlie's Angels essentially refer to himself. He's kind of playing a version of himself as a Hollywood actor that's dating one of the angels. Very right. odd. You know, it's in this period, we've mentioned a couple of them, but in this period that we still had 
big theme tunes for Hollywood blockbusters. I didn't know Avengers had the track by Suggs. Lost in Space yeah. had a reinterpretation by Apollo 440. Mission Impossible, the first one, had the track by Mullen and Clayton of U2. The yeah. second the second had two songs. Limp Bizkit is terrible. Metallica's yeah. is okay as a hard rock track. I think the problem with the Metallica song it, with, in Mission Impossible 2 is, isn't that the time they... That's when they sold out. They'd always said they weren't going to put a song in a film, and that right. was the first time they they did it. And then I think, I think to make matters worse, I think that's then the song that was the straw that broke the camel's back with the whole Napster thing, and they flipped out about getting illegally downloaded on Napster, um, oh, which sense, is something yeah. that all all artists, of course, want to protect their art and and have it be like the the value that it should be on the market, but. For some reason, they just came off really badly in that, that whole that whole debate, the Napster debate, and I, I think it was the Mission Impossible song that may have um, may have done it. The reason mm. they came off like that is because, as the dude says, they're a bunch of assholes. They're like the musical equivalent of Michael Cimino. With every new work they make, retrospectively, mm. an earlier album loses its reveration and is decreed crappy by all. So with Cimino, mm. it really was the case that when Heaven's Gate was released. Critics who had loved The Deer Hunter literally went back to it, perplexed, wondering if they'd essentially been had. It wasn't just revisionism, it was a, a, a mass dissension upon the picture where scratching their heads, they're meeting in foyers and uh, revivals, saying, I've... were we wrong? Did we, we, did we find profundity in nonsense? And it's the same with Metallica, where every new release destroys the reputation of a once-revered earlier album. And soon fans will denounce Master of Puppets, and the next one will be Ride the Lightning. And I, I personally, I think De- um, um, Deer Hunter was always overrated. I, I remember seeing that when I was 15, 16 years old, and thinking, I think the problem is I'd already seen Apocalypse Now, which came out the following year. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you don't, where where else is there to go after that? I saw Deer Hunter and thought, this is just nonsense. This is ridiculous. <laughs> what? <laughs> what, a, what? What a rubbish film. Uh, whereas you know, Apocalypse Now felt like um literature the other the other classic example is weezer albums with yeah <laughs> with each with each new weezer album although i do think the last uh well not the last couple but a couple of the recent ones have been decent but with each new weezer album you do go back and question was pinkerton that good yeah it is it is i was singing it in the shower a couple of weeks ago uh, he never again had the verve and confidence to bear himself so completely and without mm. matt sharp i think to at the same time, dampen his indulgences. Mm. They would never again be anywhere near as good. I think that's one reason that he quit. Rivers dominated the four of them, but it was Sharp who better stood up to him and it create it was a, a fertile creative ground. With Sharp gone, with those unusual backing vocals, and a decent bassist as well, with all, that, with all of that gone, then it became straight power pop and I lost interest. But anyway, so, so that's um, where Mission Impossible well, comes from. Yeah. Mission Impossible comes from the 90s boom in television adaptations. I'm pretty convinced that there is a job role. I don't know what the title is. They probably give it a very ambiguous job title. But somewhere in Hollywood, each studio has someone who works very, very closely with the legal department. And they are going through the vaults and they are looking for any, any property that they are sitting on. Uh, and, and just to work out if they own it 
so they can yeah. they can make a movie out of it and and reap the benefits because I'm sure out there someone probably has sat down and had a non-ironic meeting where they've said, "Hey, how about we have a chips shared universe? I'm, yeah. <laughs> how yeah. about we do that?" <laughs> There's a durability about the Mission Impossible franchise. The longest continuously running franchise going right now, other than Bond. This is 22 years of Mission Impossible. So I wanted to look at how Mission Impossible has stuck around. I think, I think it's intrinsically linked to the character of Tom Cruise himself. And this is meant to be a kind comparison, but I'd compare him to Frank Lampard, the Chelsea player, Chelsea in England. And it's been said that as Frank Lampard was breaking through in the youth setup and into the first team at West Ham, it was noted that he wasn't excellent at anything. He may not have had natural flair, but he had dedication, ethic, professionalism, terrific attitude. And I think Tom Cruise is the same. Tom Cruise is a fine actor, but not among the best of his generation. It, in the right role, he's terrific. Magnolia, Colour of Money, Rain Man. He is terrific in all of those, but he's not an actor's actor. For instance, he's not no. even an oddity like Nicolas Cage. If you look at his contemporaries, the Vez, Kiefer Sutherland, Sean Penn, Val Kilmer, Johnny Cusack, it's not acting ability that differentiates him from any of that lot, and it's not even necessarily about charisma. He isn't arrestingly handsome like Jason Patrick or Rob Lowe. He doesn't have that rip-off-my-clothes, raw sexuality, dickhead fuckability of Kevin Bacon, Matt Dillon, Robert Downey. And although he had the same fucked up teeth as Ben Stiller and Nicolas Cage, Cruz never went for the oddball magnetism that Cage has in Valley Girl, for instance. But I'm waiting for the Tom Cruise compliment to come in here. Okay, where's the, it, where's the it, Frank Lampard compliment? It, it is on its way. It is on its way. It is on its way. But then if we're to consider Tom Cruise as an action hero, he's, he doesn't fit the bill either. He's not tall. He's not beefy. But what he has is... Uh, I, I feel like he has willed himself through dedication, professionalism, he's willed himself into being a superstar. I really think that Tom Cruise is a great example of a man whose professionalism is so high that he's transformed himself into the absolute top capacity of, of what a human can do, given his mm -hmm. relatively lowly start, because he's basically just like you or I. And, and I, I, I admire all of that. I admire all of that immensely. And I think he's slightly better looking than me. He's slightly better no, looking than I, me. I think... But no, but I know I do know what you mean in terms of look, the Frank Lampard comment is 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 a good one because I I really admire uh, when I'm watching the uh World Cup this year, I'll I'll admire anyone who runs for the ball and will run. They might yeah. not be the most flash footballer, but I admire people uh, in anyone a work ethic and and someone who's willing to run, win a do their best to win a ball even if they haven't won it. I think they they tried, and I know he's going to try the next time as well, and that's what I want. I want persistence. And yeah. I, I want someone who's not going to give up. And, um, yeah, I think Cruz, you're right, his work ethic is um, is staggering. And he did he get a producer's credit on the first mission? I can't remember. He, I know he's got one on the second mission. It was essentially his brainchild. He had been looking to move into action pictures. He wanted to do an action film. Could, uh, yeah, don't forget, he wasn't an action star then, was he? Really? No, he was, no. He'd done those kind no, of character roles in... Why, why would he be? Because he's five foot seven. He still had boyish looks back then. Stretching his acting chops in Born on the Fourth of July, in which yeah. I've, I've watched that forensically a couple of times recently. He is very good in it. 
Um, another he thing is. about he's, Cruz he's is that great in that film. Uh, he, his his cadence is fine, but he he doesn't have he couldn't be on stage, for instance. His voice peaks when he shouts. Uh, mm. it, it kind of distractingly, slightly irritatingly. He doesn't have the control over his voice that a trained actor would have, and Cruz isn't a trained actor. Again, he's just committed, committed. And I think 16, 18, 20 hours a day, making himself as good as he can possibly be. I think the Mission Impossible franchise itself is a little like that. The first one cost 80, uh-huh. and it took 457. That's the Yeah, which at the gross. time, is that's big, big stuff in 96. Third biggest film of its year, both domestic and worldwide. Then, do you know what the biggest was? I do, yeah. Well, I, I know down to about 15. Do, do you want to guess? Uh, 96. Twister. That's good enough. Um, I'll take, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take you through it. So the number one film at the box office in 1996, worldwide and domestic, was Independence Day. Of course it was, yeah. Cost 75, gross of 817. Huge numbers. Twister got 494. So Twister was more than half of what Independence Day got, but that's as close as it got. Independence Day walked it. Oh, yeah, Absolutely yeah, walked it. yeah. So the top three was Mission Impossible, Twister, and Independence Day. Uh, Mission Impossible was, though, only... And this is something that's replicated throughout the series. Mission Impossible was only the fifth most expensive film of its year. So the Mission films have always had large budgets, but mm. they've essentially remained static while... The marketplace around it has spent more and more. And I'll take you through it quickly now. In 96, third biggest film on the planet, but only about the fifth most expensive of its year. Then the sequel, Mission Impossible 2. Third at the US box office, number one worldwide. Number one. Took 546, Mm. only cost 125. So that made it the third most expensive film of its year. And I do recall... um, Cruz had brought in John Woo, whose stock was at its peak off the back of not Broken Arrow, but Face Off... Wu yeah. had come across from Hong Kong after making, well, The Killer and Hard Boiled and A Better Tomorrow, uh, the, the cream of his crop. Fa- he, man, he was a fantastic director. It's just that Hollywood bit his shit so hard that he couldn't keep doing what made him great. Yeah. So, yeah. Mission Impossible 2, the least well regarded of all of the series, one that I haven't mm-hmm. even seen. I've only seen 20 minutes because my tape broke. I got the tape for Christmas and it actually broke. It's. Um, I watched it to death because uh, I was a big fan of the first mission. The second one, I went to the cinema. I've seen them all at the cinema. Um, and that's something I, I, I'll say very briefly about the franchise. It always feels like it's nobody's favourite franchise. You know, you, you've got yeah, Star yeah. Wars fans or Trek fans or whatever. Mission Impossible is this thing that feels like it's there and it, it's always been there. And it started off as TV show, baby boomer, 1960s nostalgia. And it's now turned into an action franchise. And I'm sure you'll get into this in a bit more depth in a moment, Fletch. But yeah, the, the first is this espionage thriller. The second is this John Woo Hong Kong action film. I watched it to death. It's got so many John Woo tropes in it of slow-mo and doves flying yeah. and God knows what. It doesn't feel like a mission movie. But at the time, I thought it was silly but 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 fun. Um, and then as, as you move on... They kind of, I think they sort of suss out what works. It's like a big pendulum. The first mission is this, is this espionage thriller. The pendulum's to the left. Mission Possible Two, the pendulum swings all the other way to the right for this silly action flick. For the third one, it kind of goes in the middle and it's teetered around there a li- to a greater or lesser extent ever since. 
And Mission Impossible 3, I know that you really dig it. It's J.J. Abrams' debut film. It always felt to me like it was a big improvement on the second, but it's just this... It, it in itself has a relentless pace. And I feel like it was the fourth one, the Brad Bird one, again, his first uh, live-action film, coming off the back of The Incredibles, where it, it kind of got the balance a little bit better between the espionage of the original and then the action of the subsequent pictures. Um, and it's kind of gone now. I kind of think it's entered this almost Fast and the Furious state where some of the cast members are still hanging around. It went from having different people practically in every one to some of them hang on for a bit now and they're introduced and then you, you have them for a couple of pictures. I quite like that because the way I want to eventually see it go when crews can't do these anymore is I really want to see it like a football team where you, you get people <laughs> come in and go out over the years. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I agree that each of them has its merits. Clearly, even if the second one isn't a good film, it was colossal and it uh, knew how to work the zeitgeist, as we said. Both it's very 2000s. Limp Biscuits. I mean, Limp Biscuit are fucking awful. Biscuit have a lyric that goes, if you don't care, then we don't care. And that, that, that That's all about the disaffected. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. it crystallises their attitude. However, it's on the zeitgeist. It knew where it was going. But, um, yeah, it's the fourth one that it becomes what we know now as a Mission Impossible film. So I'll, I'll whip through them quickly. So the third one by J.J. Abrams, which I do like. We'll come back to that later. The third one, which I do like, was the eighth biggest film worldwide that year. Only 14th at the US box office, and it's always performed better worldwide, but top 15 at the US box office. But it was only the sixth most expensive film of its year. X-Men Last Stand was uh, 210 million they spent on that. Mm. Uh, Superman Returns, 270. Mm. Um, and now we'll move on to 2011 when Ghost Protocol came out. So this is the Brad Bird one. Tenth most expensive film of its year. Fifth biggest film in the world. That year, the most expensive film was on Stranger Tides. It's still the most expensive film of all time. 378 mil. Mm. That's more than Why twice. would you spend that on anything? Um, <laughs> I, I understand that it costs more to shoot on water, and that's why Waterworld cost well over 200 mil 23 years ago. They're not the in t- open water in the Pirates films. They're in tanks, right. aren't they? Yeah, and, and Titanic had a similar had a similar challenge but 378 mil in that year in 2011 harry potter and the deathly hallows part two that cost 250 and cars 2 cost 200 mission was 145 in comparison Mm. now the thing is these mega blockbusters if you spend a third of a billion you do take a billion right so it does make fiscal sense because pirates made five or six hundred mil on its production budget yeah, and Mission Impossible only made four hundred and fifty. But I know which I know where I'd rather put my money. Mission Impossible Five, that was the eighth biggest film worldwide, eleventh at the U.S. box office, only the eleventh most expensive film of its year, hundred and fifty thousand. Uh, sorry, one hundred and fifty million. So there are yeah. Th- these days they're usually in that hundred and twenty to hundred and seventy mark. It took six hundred eighty-two, and by now by. 2015, as you'll remember, Luke, it's in a marketplace against The Force Awakens, which may have cost 300 mil. 258 mm. to 300 mil is the is the estimates. 
and Avengers mm. Age of Ultron, 365. So now that the marketplace has changed around Mission Impossible, which has remained essentially constant, but is still top 10 at the box office every time it's made and being made for a dec- for 150, which now for a, an action picture seems like a mid-range. That seems it like does, al- the, uh, almost yeah. the least that you can spend. In comparison, The Martian, which is action-oriented, but it's more like um, well, a sci-fi drama with comical tones, that cost 108 took 630 yeah. but that that's that's genuinely the outlier i mean even hunger games costs 160 inside out an animated film costs 175 and then looking at the box office this year we've still got a few big films to come out uh, aquaman and fantastic beasts i suppose will probably do a billion well you never know with the dc ones actually no the dc might not and um the aquaman film has got a very negative buzz on reddit and twitter and that people are not people are not enjoying the trailer uh people are absolutely ripping into that because again tonally it looks sort of all over the place which is the problem that's plagued those films i think that fallout is going to finish as about the seventh or eighth most expensive film of the year again not an outlier just about where the mission films have usually been and Mm -hmm. it may fall outside the global top 10 which would be the first time a mission film has ever done that domestically again it will probably fall to about 12th maybe it really depends upon how much what legs it's got interestingly there are two pictures which may make the global top 10 two non-hollywood pictures operation red sea and the magnificently titled detective chinatown 2 right have, have both made over half a billion in the Chinese market, they're currently at seven and eight worldwide. They'll drop yeah, out. Yeah, and this is Aquaman, it. This is it now. Fantastic beasts, probably, but this is it now. You've got, you've got to do well in and that it's only Chinese the second market. Time. Um, last year was the first year in which a Chinese picture broke the Hollywood stranglehold. I'm surprised that. Uh, yeah, I'm surprised Bollywood films don't. There is enough Indians, and there is a tremendous. Indian diaspora and Indians are you know globally speaking Indians are affluent people in America in Canada in the UK and in India even poor Indians spend their money at the cinema so I'm I am surprised that uh, maybe it's something to do with the currency but you would you would think wouldn't you yeah I do know what you mean the size of the market etc and uh, God knows there's a market for Bollywood films English British people watching Bollywood films here in the UK uh, as opposed to specifically what, wanting to watch Chinese films. But it, this is a sign of things to come. It's interesting that these two films have are likely to sneak in this year. Uh, I use the term sneak, you know, in the loosest possible sense. But um, it's a growing market, and now you've got to do well. Everyone knows that no one goes to see Star Wars in China, and I'm sure that's got to be worrying some people to the point where they rebranded Solo, a Star Wars story, as... I think Ranger Solo or something along those lines really? to the point where they wanted nothing to do with the Star Wars franchise. Maybe if we don't call it Star Wars, people will go and watch it. And um, I guess the Jurassic Parks do well over there now, the new Jurassic Worlds. There's a there's an argument as to why they've gotten more brainless because it's not because those audiences are brainless, but it's in a very literal sense, you need the films to translate as well as possible. So yeah. it's interesting that this year, The Meg is one of the first films. Now, Chinese money's always been in films i think chinese investment is in films like transformers again which does very well in china but uh, the meg is one of these first films that's a joint us uh chinese production specifically to dominate both markets um 
and I think you could you just need to look at the poster, look at a trailer to get the general tone of a film like The Meg to go, oh okay, and I hate using this phrase, but it's a switch my brain off kind of moment. I'm going to enjoy the roller coaster ride, hmm. and um, and that's what we've got there. So it's interesting that the Mission Impossible's have done well globally because yes, they rely on big um, stunts and they've become more reliant on that in recent years. Maybe that is a sign of the times. But equally speaking, that they are plotted. Like I, one of the great tropes about the Mission Impossible films is that well, that I've always loved about them is that the uh, MacGuffin is very simplistic and really doesn't matter. The first one famously is the knock list, which yeah, uh, yeah. I used to then base a lot of sort of fan fiction around if I was writing my own creative writing stories, whatever. Um, I would often come up with um, the knock list, you know, a list of undercover operatives throughout the it. world. It came it's up been in used... Atomic Blonde last year as well. It was, basically. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's been used many times. The second one is Chimera, which is um, oh, yeah. a disease, a, a virus that's been designed in a lab to wipe people out. Um, the third one, J.J. Abrams, classic J.J. mystery box stuff, Rabbit's yeah. Foot. The Rabbit's Foot, we never know what it is. Yeah. And and it's almost a joke. And I like that it's, it's a joke about J.J. and his convoluted lost you know, subplots that don't go anywhere. But it's equally a joke about, you know, the first two Mission Impossible MacGuffins that really don't matter. Uh, And the Mission Impossible's really been about who's going to double-cross who and who's on whose side. And you do need to keep up with what people are saying, generally speaking, especially in that first one and, um, and some of the more recent ones. But I suppose, at the end of the day, they are plotted, but... um. A lot of it is to get from A to B to C to D, isn't it? I suppose yeah. it's not, it's not a character-driven thing or anything like that. That maybe that sort of thing isn't lost in translation too much. Uh, whereas if it's if it's character-driven stuff, maybe it would be. And what you've said about the now global marketplace and the need to appeal to the Chinese market—that's one of the criticisms I have with Mission Impossible Six, anyway. But as compared to Mission Impossible the original, even more so. Uh, Christopher McQuarrie is behind the last two Mission Impossibles. He's worked with Cruise eight times now. If you include the the... rewrites on the uh, fourth Mission Impossible on Ghost Protocol, he came in late on and did a punch-up at Cruise's request after working with him on Valkyrie by Brian Singer. That's where they met. McQuarrie has... I love his dialogue. He wrote and directed The Way of the Gun. This is how the picture opens. Outside of a warehouse club, we see a man react to his car alarm by clicking his set of keys in the direction of the car, which is still off screen. And he says, hey, hey, get off my car. Hey, jerk, get off my car. And then his girlfriend turns around. He's been chatting to somebody. It's Sarah Silverman. This is back in 2000 when UK audiences didn't know her that well. And she says, hey, fucker. Hey, fuckhead. Hey, hey, get off the fucking car. Yeah, you and your fucking gay uncle, get off the fucking... And she's cussing him out. And it's Benicio Del Toro and Ryan Felipe. The situation looks like it may or may not escalate. And then Ryan Felipe, words of Christopher McQuarrie, says, shut that cunt's mouth or I'll fuck start her head. Oh, Boom! Yeah. And that's what we're miss- Um, You know, I know you can't have that in Mission Impossible 6, but that's the kind of personal, precise, idiosyncratic, weird, character-driven, and with a point of view delicious dialogue that has to be absent from the Mission Impossible pictures, I think, because it doesn't translate. And uh, Macquarie did a wonderful job on Reacher as well. So these are the pictures he's done with the crews of Valkyrie, as I said, Ghost Protocol. 
uh, wrote and directed Reacher, which I think was great. I approached that with zero expectations, and I thought it very cleverly walked a great tightrope between um, self-conscious pastiche while delivering a great action picture. Mm. Its characters know that they're in an action film, just about. They don't wink at the audience. It's more like a very gentle smirk, just so those that are those that can see the glimmer in their eye realize oh you know like they we kind of understand this is a little bit absurd uh, but we're going with it and then edge of tomorrow another banger that's yeah, by Doug that's, Lyman who did american made and he's he's doing a re- re- reuniting with Cruz soon as well uh, rogue nation the jack reacher sequel which Macquarie only produced and i heard it sucked that was ed swick who Cruz did last samurai with the mummy you know didn't work out and mm-hmm. then fall out now. But my biggest criticism of it is that the banter is minimal and very basic. That that scene at the beginning of this new one with Cruz and Peg, mm. where I think Peg's line is, it gives me the creeps. They're standing in an alleyway and he says, like, did we really have to come out here? It gives me the creeps. Gives yeah. me the creeps. What? That's not even EastEnders. That's CBBC. That's the level that we're at with some of this. However... On the other hand, what Mission Impossible still retains is an enormous warmth to its characters. So in the denouement of this sixth instalment, the cross-cutting between Luther and... can't remember her name, but she's played by Michelle Monaghan. And Cruz and the fight with Rebecca Ferguson and Sean Harris. There's warmth. And, yeah, there's um, warmth, yeah. Snap. I mean, Ving Ra- you, some of, of these people have been knocking about for a, a few as well. Ving Rhames... Yeah. As Luther is one of my favourite things about the franchise. I love that yeah. he is there in every one. Yeah. The only other character. That's another thing I find interesting about how Mission Impossible is different from current franchises. Within this franchise, there isn't an overwhelming desire to cram it full of recognisable characters or, or to bring back characters from the original series or make reference to characters from earlier in the series. Now, this one is the first one where I even noticed a reference. Uh, the White Widow is the daughter of Max, my fav- one of my favourite characters from 90s cinema, actually, Vanessa Redgrave's character in Mission Impossible. Mm. I heard that as... Is, is that Was that... So I missed that. I've only seen the sixth one twice, and I did hear that it was the daughter of Max. Was that a I literal noticed, callback? Yeah, I, I noticed it when, uh, as Cruz and Ferguson is peg with them. No, sorry, Henry Cavill is with them. The three of Henry them Cavill's into the... Them, yeah charity ball the la- i can't remember the lady i really liked her performance though she was one of the best things in it she's giving a speech about her i thought she must mean grandmother but i think she says mother and she said max and i thought dang knock list all right i really do I, you, I really think do you yeah. really think that was a callback but That's other, fantastic. Than, other than that it doesn't have that embedded universe to its credit and i was just watching captain america i was giving that a go i'd, I'd never watched it and i realized this is staggering the marvel cinematic universe has almost a century of backstory you can plot what these characters and their parents are doing from the, from the 30s onwards but you can plot these people it becomes a soap opera this it's so dense not necessarily intelligent but dense and packed from 1940 to however far in the future with peter quill in the guardians of the galaxy staggering whereas mission impossible there's an an enjoyable simplicity about that franchise but But i don't even i'm not even sure if they're all in my alternate universe head i'm not even sure if they're all connected i I know what you mean there's a simplicity that one film generally generally speaking doesn't carry on from the other and i think that's to its strength because until now at least 
they've always had an individual director who's had its individual tone. Uh, the first film is a Brian De Palma film, without a doubt. You know, there's so much in there that is him. The way he's framing shots, the way he's using Dutch angles and everything's up skew if, you know, it's at an angle. You, you re-watch the, uh, the scene with um, Tom Cruise talking to the director just after everyone's died and they're in the, the yeah. fish restaurant with all the fish tanks. The camera's almost like it's on the on the table of the restaurant yeah, looking up at Cruz at an it? angle and you can he's looking around he can see that all of the people from the bull are in the restaurant as well he's being watched yeah. and his boss is in on it you, there's a stomach churning moment that is a Brian De Palma picture without a shadow of a doubt Go on. the second is definitely a John Woo picture I think that that that, that is to their strengths um, but I, I think almost in a certain sense that I almost think that they're not connected, really, until the more recent ones. Because in in a way, how is he that ageless? He's tried yeah. to retire once. He's got married, and now he's back on the job. I don't I don't get how it how he could possibly be the same person. I know Luther's still there, but I don't get how this is the same kid from uh, from '96 whose like, um, father Ra- figure uh, uh, you know betrayed him. Rames has aged. He does mm. look different. He's still cool. He's kind of large mm. now, though. He's only a couple of years older than Cruz. They didn't come up at the same time, but Rames was in... I think he's in Casualties of War by De Palma. He's in Jacob's Ladder by Adrian Lyne at the beginning of the 90s. Most of the time that both of them have been in Hollywood, they've been in Hollywood together. I loved re-watching the first one. I hadn't seen it in a while. I think it's one that... Yeah, Baker knows exceptionally well, because when we watched it at 114, he knew about the knock list. And I, something about Baker, because he's quiet with it, I'm surprised... And delighted when he remembers such tiny details of films. I love The Knock List now. I'm always thinking about The Knock List. The first mission, it's so wonderfully a De Palma picture. It opens with the Fez watching Cruz oh. and Emmanuel Burt on CCTV. So the Fez is watching television. That's the very first shot of the film. Brian De Palma all over. Brian De Palma is all about two things, filmmaking and voyeurism. Turning yeah. us into the voyeur, making us think about what that means. And copying from Hitchcock in a, a a beautifully ostentatious manner, and I don't think there is any filmmaker better at mixing art and commerce than De Palma, and I do include Spielberg in that. And I point to The Untouchables in '87 and Mission Impossible. Mm-hmm. I think both of them. You know, you're watching a film. You notice the Dutch angles, the montage elements, the the use of deep focus. You know, you're watching a film from someone who has studied cinema their entire life and is going back to Greg Tolland in Citizen Kane and taking mm-hmm. from Rope and taking from North by Northwest and the Hitchcock yeah. Blonde, all of that. But I I like how showy De Palma is. Even in like um, I watch Dress to Kill, and um, I'm, a load of it is hokum. But there's three or four sequences where you get to the end of it and you have to pause and I, I turned to Thorpe and said, we fucking hell. I don't care about the rest of the film. I'm, you know, the themes may be bullshit, the cross-dressing nonsense. I don't care. That's why we're here. That's why we're into cinema. Sometimes you just want two or three minutes of superbly executed tension. And De Palma yeah. does that so well in Mission Impossible and opens it exactly as you want it to be as well. And that was, interestingly, that was basically the last picture the Fez did. He's acted maybe a dozen times since then, over 22 years. He now directs. He directed Bobby and The Way with his old man. But his last big picture was just a cameo at the beginning. And it's, it's another thing that I... Uh, this is the way in which Mission Impossible has changed as well. Another way in which Mission Impossible has changed is that... 
the first one foregrounded the group ethic from the series. It did, yeah. And when I showed it to Thorpe, I didn't over-egg it, but I did prep it by saying, so this is the team for this movie because we've just seen the sixth one. And I wanted her to think, okay, here we go with Christian Scott Thomas and the Fairs Cruiser, yeah. Jim Phelps. And it's very clever because when Jim Phelps is briefing them all, there's no close-ups of Tom Cruise. He's framing the whole team. They're all there, you know, from left to right around the table. Yeah. No one gets a close-up. And you really do think that Emilio, you know, he could be he could be the lead of the film for all we know. Yeah. You know, it's opened with him. And to a 96 audience, especially knowing the relationship between Cruz and Estevez, that they had known each other since Outsiders, that Cruz did the cameo in The Second Young Guns, there would still be an expectation that this guy's going to stick around. You're right. It does keep that team dynamic up. Scene by scene, the opening of Mission Impossible is like the TV show. And yeah, they've kept the same broad structure, but you open, like you say, with uh, looking through the CCTV, they're, they're looking at their last mission. They do, they do that great thing where uh, they realise that, uh, uh, you know, they set someone up in a set, literally. They think they're in a hotel room. They think that they've killed someone. Uh, and then they get the information out of them and then the walls fall down, the set falls down, which is something that, again, they pick up in uh, the latest one, don't they? But obviously on a far more grandiose scale. Um, and then you've got Good Morning, Mr. Phelps. You've got the him going through the dossier, looking through the team. And then, and then, like the briefing scene, it it it's business as usual. It's just it look it's opening yeah. like a standard episode of Mission Impossible, isn't it? And that's quintessential De Palma as well. The construct of cinema, the facade falling down. So much of that film, rewatching it, in in terms of its theme, so much of it is about the voyeur and different perspectives, which is useful for a spy film. Uh, it's probably one way in which. De Palma was able to insert himself into a big studio picture by realising, if I make this about perspectives and viewpoints and um, uh, solipsism within narrative and what one thing means from one perspective and how it's seen differently from another, then that's my, that's my way into this. That's my uh, access point. I remember when it's all going down, Cruz says to Emmanuel Burt, I saw you get in the car. Mm. Now he thinks he saw her get in the car, or he did see her, but then something else happened. And then at the climax, Ethan uses Phelps's own glasses against him. So the That's glasses it, yeah. that were used to deceive Hunt, and it's those glasses that are used to kickstart the plot and fake Phelps' death. And it's cinema itself which fakes that death, which is the accomplice to Phelps. Watching the film a second time, it's clear that the gun that's pointed at Phelps is held by Phelps himself. Ethan could not possibly have identified that as he saw it in real time. And it's film and seeing and cinema itself that nails Phelps at the end. What exposes Phelps is another character sees him. And in this case, just like in the opening scene, it's on a TV screen. Kitteridge glances down to his high-tech watch and says... Good morning, Mr. Phelps. Just as he did at the beginning of the film, at the outset, when delivering the message on the tape that will self-destruct in five seconds. And once again, we're seeing its voyeurism. Um, mm. it, the, the, the very act of seeing is what's so pivotal to the plot. And that, that's terrific, De Palma. I, I love that. I, I like to say, you know, this is what we've said about Spielberg. Um, I suppose Spielberg does it a different way. Spielberg, potentially at his best and most of the time, will find a project which will will allow him to uh, investigate and explore 
his daddy issues basically but maybe with this one it's more like De Palma found within the project a way to get in there the first has to be seen in isolation because I don't think any of the others have this level of thematic depth but then the first Mission Impossible wasn't created as part of a franchise it was the inception of the franchise and it stands alone as a work of a work of cinema by a procession of superbly talented Hollywood creatives like The Untouchables. The Untouchables was written by David Mamet. Its wardrobe was provided by Giorgio Armani. The theme was by Ennio Morricone. Top, 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 top. It's the same with Mission Impossible. Just looking at the top talent across the board, opening credits of Mission Impossible, Zalian, Kep and Town. That's mm. ridiculous. Basically got three decades there. Town for the 70s, Zalian for the 90s and yeah. Kep for the 90s and even into this century. Uh, followed by Rob Bettine doing the uh, mask effects, edited by Hirsch, shot by Stephen H. Borum, and then the um, the score done to complement the yeah to complement the main theme. The score by Danny Elfman and two of U two again like yeah we make a lot of jokes about them now, but U two were the biggest rock band in the world when that film came out. Then they did pop and they lost some of their pomp, but off the back of Zuro Pranaktung Baby, the Zoo TV tour. Read up on that tour. It was challenging its medium. Phone calls from the stage to President Bush in the White House. Satellite link-ups with Warton Sarajevo. It was artistically challenging stuff. Did you find the first Mission Impossible as great as you ever have? Yeah, I think it's only grown uh, in time. I think it's aged incredibly well. It stands up to this day. What's funny is it's... I think it holds up and stands up because, like you say, it is undeniably a De Palma picture. I think there is stuff going in there, going on in there thematically, and I think the way that the cinematic devices that are used work really, really well for it and stand the test of time. You're right. You know, he is ripped from the pages of Hitchcock. He wears that heart on his sleeve very, very well, and uh, and that is all in there in that first mission. And I was tense the whole time, and I must have seen this film ten, fifteen times in my life. But I loved uh, every minute of it rewatching it recently, and I'm really, really glad I did. And the franchise has always been with me, and I've eagerly gone to see the next one at the movies. I think what's funny now is that these days it's it's a film, it's a franchise that's just always been there. You went through the box office stats. I think it's something that a lot of us just turn up to go and see. And I think that finally the the clock is turning in its favour, in a sense, where I think this is the first time round with this sixth instalment where people are really starting to appreciate the fact that it's, it, it is around where pre- before they, they maybe haven't, uh, haven't done. But, uh, yeah. But, but yeah, the, that, that first mission will always mean a lot to me because and this is what people have forgotten now, like you say. It was coming off the back of a TV show and it was a TV show to me first and Jim Phelps was a hero of mine as a kid. It broke my heart that John Voight's Jim Phelps was uh, was really the bad guy? Although that was a twist, that was exciting, hmm. um, and it was it was it was an exciting moment in the cinema. I think ever since then, on some subconscious primordial level, I've I've almost wanted it to go back to the opening scenes of the first film, when it was the team and no one had a close up, and it you just saw the whole team sitting around the table, joking with each other which really did harken back to the tv show and ever since they killed everyone off really quickly such an impression on me when emilio got it in the lift and and when the sort of spike goes through his eye 
That's yeah. stuff you wouldn't get in a Mission Impossible film now, by the way. These things are... I think the second one in the UK was rated uh, 15. You wouldn't get that now. The, these these films are made for the mass market a little bit more yeah. and made to have that cross-generational appeal. But uh, yeah, that, that really shocked me as a kid. And I think on some level, I've always thought that ever since that moment in the hotel in Prague, it became the Tom Cruise show. I think somewhere I've always wanted it to go back to the team, which is why... And, and we go through the succession of uh, IMF directors, don't we, from film to film. So it's Fishburne but, in the third, right? Yeah, Fishburne's in the third. We've had Alec Baldwin most recently. But we, we've gone through this succession of directors. Anthony Hopkins in the second one. Yeah, yeah. A- and I think I really want to get to a point where Cruz is too old to do this now. He got injured on this one quite badly and, and maybe... Maybe it means I want to see him be the director, have the producer credit, pull the creative team together, and I want to see these films become ensemble pictures again. Uh, yeah, because he's, he's almost the age that Voigt was when Voigt played Phelps. By the yeah. time of the next one, he will be that age. Cruise in four years' time and Voigt then. Voigt's a fine-looking fellow, but you know he looked like a man in his 60s, maybe late 50s. Cruise will not look like that. People... 50-year-olds now, people in their 50s now, they've just they've lived a different life. Mm. Probably an easier life with better nutrition and fewer fewer physical challenges, I suppose. And mm. stars, you know, that Voigt's, from, Voigt's of an age where his contemporaries, well, for instance, Burt Reynolds of Deliverance and Seagal, that's uh, George, not Stephen, and mm. Elliot Gould, Dustin Hoffman, uh, Robert Redford, Ryan O'Neill... And most, you know, a lot of them look good. Robert Redford in particular and Ryan O'Neill look good. But they, there wasn't the expectation that they would stay pumped and gym ready uh, like an athlete past 32, 35. And Cruz has looked, he still looked, you know, he, whether or not he looks terrific, he can do this. He can do it for real. He's got a body like Jackie Chan. I take the opposite view of what you've said. In the film itself, the execution of the film... It's played as though they are a team, an equal team, I felt. I would also like to see if they could go back to the ethos of the original, where it begins with a team and then a new team is assembled, where Ethan's the leader, but they have their part to play to an extent. But within MI6, I did feel as though they do consider themselves equals, each with their own particular skill set. Because it within that team, it's not as though... I didn't get the feeling that Ethan is the best at everything, but yeah. he is the wildest, I suppose. He's the wet man, and that's why he goes up against the other wet man, Cavill. Yeah, Where they never the... made the mistake again in the same way. From the third one on, it, it the, there was a little bit more of an emphasis on the team. In fact, when, when I mm. saw the third one again, I'd forgotten how um, little Simon Pegg is in it. You know, that's his first, obviously, the JJ connection, he's in there. Yeah. But um, I'd forgotten that he's not in it that much. He's he's a very much a supporting character, and he's gone on to become a field agent and a leading, uh, you know, a, a part of the ensemble. Um the second one, and this is why I think they're always in different universes, because is the Jim Phelps from the first film really the Jim Phelps from the TV show? Well, he's not played by the same guy, and a lot of people were so upset that Jim Phelps was turned into the antagonist. They believe that the movies are in a separate universe. On that same breath, Ethan Hunt in the second film, he's more of a James Bond character. He suddenly becomes a weird womanizer with one-liners, you know, a, a thrill for danger, like with a death wish. Uh, like climbing up a, a mountain 
for no reason at the beginning, just because he's on yeah. holiday uh, with no harness. And he becomes suddenly this playboy, which he, he never is again. And he certainly wasn't that in the first film. One of the things I like about De Palma's first film is that Tom Cruise is very vulnerable. Like I said, when he's in that restaurant and he looks around and realises that all of the guests at the restaurant are the people that were in that hotel when they were set up and his team were yeah. murdered. It's stomach churning. He's vulnerable. And when he's on the run, he's a man on the run. Now, he he's he has been on the run since in in uh, Ghost Protocol. And uh, it, it, there's other films where he's gone rogue, which is one of my criticisms of um, all spy films these days. Mm. James Bond apparently doesn't have missions anymore. He's always gone yeah. rogue. But where's our... Where's our taxpayers' money going, you know? <laughs> I know. And I do miss the, the 60s James Bond when he used to go into M's office, put his hat on the, you know, put his hat on the uh, stand, flirt with Money Penny, go to M's office and get his mission. Someone explained his yeah. mission to him. And, and these days, that's just a joke. In the last one, that was played for laughs with a knowing yeah. wink. Oh, we're back where we began, are we? Can you give him a mission? Is he ever going <laughs> to run a mission? Mission Impossible, they're often, most of the time, they're having to undo a big mistake, like this one begins in that way. But mm. there is there is spy work, there is surveillance. I think deals. it's the... I like the deal stuff as well. The deal stuff's great, and, and that's one of my favourite <clears throat> bits of the Brad Bird film, when they're in the big tall building in Dubai, and they have to set up those deals in the two, in two rooms, and one room above the other, and they've got, you know... Oh, you yeah. You can't remember oh, who's yeah. talking to who, and uh, one person has the real nuclear codes and one person doesn't, and they have to use the real ones for the pers- the baddie who they don't want to give them to, but they they have to. It's it's really good fun. Um, so yeah, there is more of a the later ones do have more of a team thing going on, but I think on some level I know that Cruz is behind. You know, it's it's his it's his action juggernaut. It's his vehicle. I do know that. He has steered it. He has. It wouldn't even be fair to say audience indifference because that second one was the biggest film of its year. But off the back of it, there was no clamour for a third Mission Impossible. And mm. it took six years. But slowly, with dedication and perseverance, it's become almost like Miguel Portillo. Once somebody's been around for 20, 25 years, you begin to like him. There's consistency to it. And it's a bit I, like George Costanza. <laughs> George Costanza, when he talks in Seinfeld, when he talks about his appeal to women, he says, I'm like that annoying song that you uh, hear on the radio in the morning and then it's stuck in your head later in the day and you don't know why. By men, isn't it? Costanza. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and I, 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 we don't mean to damn it with faint praise. We should move on to the staggering set pieces in Mission Impossible 6. We should do, we should do. And, and please don't get me wrong, I love this series. I always have. I've seen everyone at the cinema. It's something that my father and I have always bonded over. Um, we don't watch them together, but we will text each other. Like, he might, oh, catch, really? it on ne- he might catch it on Netflix 18 months later. Yeah. But we, we will then swap notes 18 months later when he's finally managed to catch up with the latest mission. You know, it's, it's really good fun. That's exactly um, what it's meant to be. That's something that gives it a slight edge over what we could consider the competition because there isn't that cross-generational appeal. For Harry Potter has a very limited cross-generational appeal between basically, I don't know, like 12-year-olds and 38-year-olds. Yeah, people who yeah, so, were too old to read it in the first place but did anyway. Yes, though those those people. And some of the young adult fiction which has been turned into that they're not the the um 
they're not the monoliths that Harry Potter were anyway. The dark is rising, and even the Philip Pullman novels that my uncle enjoys, they don't have the same cachet, and they, they neither have the, the dedicated cult following nor the broad appeal. But it, oh, that's lovely to hear that you do that. I did want to air my grievances, just like Costanza. So I, I got a lot that, of problems with you people. <laughs> <laughs> I have, and this is it. It's quite remarkable. Mission Impossible 6 is so much more than the sum of its parts. Because its parts aren't very good. Dialogue. I don't think. The, yeah. I think the dialogue was god awful in the sixth yeah, one. Yeah, perfunctory. It 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 feels like it's been put through Google Translate. It's a shame. I do. You know, it's something I miss from current popular cinema. The repartee of Grodin and De Niro in Midnight Run, mm. when it's not just bickering like in Lethal Weapon, but witty back and forth, which seems like the interaction of two genuine humans that could live outside of those films so yeah the, the dialogue was perfunctory and they don't move with familiarity and jocularity and just um casuality that you would expect from people who've been making films together for some time yeah and in fact that was the first film out of any of them where i was even disappointed uh by the luther character and i don't think ving rames it, there's something about his delivery. Uh, it wasn't quite yeah. there. Um, and even what? the I... new characters as well. Henry Cavill, who I don't mind as an actor. I, I have got a lot of time for Henry Cavill. And um, I want to I wanna wish Will that guy on as well, because he's the little guy that could. He's the guy that was supposed <laughs> yeah. to get the Brandon Ruth role when it went to Brandon Ruth Superman Returns 2006. Uh, he was he, he got beat out to another couple of things, didn't he? And he's fine. This is finally his time, and I really want him to be to have the career <laughs> that I think he deserves because that jawline deserves a career. And I think yeah. I think he's a decent Superman who's been poorly directed, and I've seen some glimmers in there that 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 think make me think, yeah, he's a good Superman. He's he's fine. But my man, he just his delivery in this film, line he after was line, terrible. Like, no, I thought he was noticeably bad however as soon as he came on screen i thought he looks like a prick and he was and he yeah. he was the embodiment of a prick if you think of a prick that's what henry cavill's character looks like and is to the extent that later on when they're in that helicopter chase cruiser even says prick I yeah. thought, yes, and so the casting was perfect. Now, in terms of acting chops, I would have preferred they just brought in Army Hammer and dyed his hair. But mm. Cavill, he, he definitely, you're right, he had the jawline, the moustache was perfect, and the the, the, the entire um, furore around keeping the moustache for the Superman reshoots and how ridiculous it looks, even with CG augmentation, it was worth it, because he it looks was. great. It he was. looks great, and short of getting a, this is the thing, short of getting a terrific character actor, and I don't know who I'd cast. Um, short of getting somebody of the of the acclaim of the exhilarating ability of Philip Seymour Hoffman in the third, and I want to divert into that for just a moment because he enlivens that one. I I recall I didn't see it at the cinema, but I was in a period where I'd go round Bannerman and Westies to watch films, and they said, "Shit, you haven't seen it." Philip Seymour Hoffman's fucking amazing in this one, and we watched it. And do you have a I, do you have a wife, girlfriend? I love that. You're dead, Mr. Davian. There were witnesses. That was you in the bathroom. And you're gonna tell us everything. Every buyer you've worked with, every organization. What the hell is your name? Names, contacts, inventory lists. You have a 
My wife, girlfriend. It's up to you how this goes. Because you know what I'm gonna do next? I'm gonna find her. Whoever she is, I'm gonna find her and I'm gonna hurt her. You were apprehended carrying details of the location of something codenamed the Rabbit's Foot. I'm gonna make her bleed and cry and call out your name. And you're not gonna be able to do shit. You know why? What is a rabbit's foot? Because you're going to be this close to dead. And who is the buyer? And then I'm going to kill you right in front of her. I'm going to ask you one more time. What's your name? What is a rabbit's foot? Who are you? And who's the buyer? You don't have any idea what the hell's going on, do you? I mean, you saw what I did to your little blonde friend at the factory, right? Oh, well, that was nothing. That was um, fun. That's fun. This hit me immediately with All You Need Is Kill. Tom Cruise wasn't in control. It was interesting to see him vulnerable. And a character that's vulnerable can actually be placed in peril. One of the best things about Mission Impossible 3 is that he isn't in control. Philip Seymour Hoffman is controlling him. And it works in the way that Quantum of Solace doesn't work for most people. There shouldn't be parity between antagonist and protagonist in Mission Impossible 3, but there is, because Philip Seymour Hoffman's dread arms dealer has complete power over the situation, and all of Cruz's expertise count for nothing against a man with true power. Best moment in that film, Fletch, which no one talks about, is, is the moment when Philip Seymour Hoffman is playing Tom Cruise disguised as Philip yeah. Seymour Hoffman, <laughs> because his, uh, and the voice chip hasn't kicked in yet, so he's trying to buy for time and pretend he has a cough and telling that guy with the gun to, to go and leave me alone. I'm just coughing at the moment at the sink. I'm the perfectly fine. Suit, the motioning, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's terrific. It's, it's fucking terrific. Um, I was joking with a pal at work and saying, um, for a certain section of cinema enthusiasts, Mission Impossible 3 is Phil Palmer and Frank T.J. Mackey, Magnolia stars, head-to-head -head once again. Yeah. You know, if you're into P.T. Anderson, then it's a big yeah. reunion. Actually, I'll interject with this now because I wanted to take a moment to talk about Cruz's unimaginable professionalism. A couple of years ago on Reddit, I was reading about best action movie stars. Tom Cruise was mentioned, and honestly, up to that point, I hadn't quite considered that he might now well be up there in the firmament with Jackie Chan. And it was through the prism of Collateral that it was discussed. Uh, there's a scene early in the film in Collateral, about 40 minutes in, I think. Cruz confronts a couple of heavies, muggers, in an alleyway. They've robbed Jamie Foxx of the briefcase. Cruz requires that briefcase to carry out his contract killings over the course of the film. He confronts these chumps and fires five shots in less than two seconds from a Heckler and Koch handgun. On Reddit, they go nuts. A Hollywood actor should not be able to execute firing so quickly and with such great accuracy. And Cruiser does it again in the nightclub shootout. Doesn't flinch while firing. This is apparently called the Mozambique drill. Michael Mann uses it in many of his pictures. Training required to get to that level of skill and marksmanship is beyond most of us anyway. It's not required for a film. Unless, of course, you're shooting with Michael Mann. Cruiser's capacity to execute that 
comes from immense dedication and I think a genuine enthusiasm and desire to be the best and show the best. So we were talking about Cruz in that capacity as a, as an astonishing astonishing and astonishingly committed action actor. And then another poster came in and said, I've only heard this story second hand, but here's what a friend of mine told me. The last samurai was greenlit. Greenlit, that is. It hadn't gone into production. But Edswick, Tom Cruise and the producers had agreed that the film was going ahead. It didn't yet have a, a firm production schedule. It didn't have a release date. And in Hollywood, for news like that, they throw a party. The guests descend. There's a hundred of them. The cruiser arrives. And I think he arrives broadly on time. Not three hours late. Not an hour late. But broadly on time. The party's held at your typical Hollywood mansion. Large entrance lobby. And when Cruz arrives, he essentially leaps into the lobby and for two or three minutes performs samurai stunts with a sword to the assembled production crew and producers and putative staff for this picture. After which he spends two hours glad-handing the crowd. The film had just got greenlit and already... He was ready to start shooting. Already he'd, off his own back, through his own dedication, and I think genuine interest and enthusiasm for learning new skills, Tom Cruise had already set up a dojo at his crib and spent months training just to get to this point. It wasn't even certain that the film would be shot that year. That stands testament to the lengths to which Cruise will go to make a film tremendous. I've heard this about him. This is part of his magnetism, right? Whether it's an element of the Scientology thing, and it's a theme throughout the making of the Mission Impossibles when they do come yeah. to these stunts, uh, and a lot of governments will go, no, you can't do that on our building. You can't do that. And then they have like dinner and drinks with Tom Cruise, who looks them in the eye, pays them loads of compliments. I'm Tom, how are you? Fantastic. Yeah, we're so happy to be filming here. And before you know it, yeah, 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 he can do whatever he wants. <laughs> like this is, yeah, 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 film on the roof. We don't care. Yeah, and I, I don't. To an extent, I would prefer that that doesn't come from um, excessive religious devotion. But if the outcome is at every premiere, a thousand people go away delighted because they've got a selfie with Tom Cruise and an autograph. If the outcome is a a good film with a great set, or a great film with a great set then it's so much positivity. Now, I, yeah, you know, I, I, I get the feeling that Tom Cruise wants to be the greatest human alive. Mm. There's a few negatives about that. I feel like there's mainly positives. I'm taking the Scientology out of it. I, I can't speak with great intelligence or eloquence on it. No. We all know. We, we, <laughs> I watched Going Clear, and we all know how dastardly that organisation is. Yeah, I don't yeah. think Tom Cruise knows. And the other thing about Cruise is that um, before he became an actor, as a child, as an adolescent, he thought he was going to seminary. He was he was a Catholic, and, and he was just people... severely dyslexic as well. I think that plays yeah. into it. Severely dyslexic, yeah, right. worked yeah. his ass off to not be dyslexic anymore. And I think this this who he yeah. is. It goes back to his work ethic, doesn't it? At every stage, yeah. So as you say, dyslexic worked and worked and worked and overcame it. 
fucked up teeth, worked and worked and got braces and braces and braces and braces. It's not the nicest thing to have braces as a teenager, let alone when you're a Hollywood actor and still at age 35, you get out and get more. Um, I look at Cruz's early roles and I don't see a great difference between him and Ben Stiller. Not only did they look similar, they even had the same messed up teeth. Yeah. And then Ben Stiller plays Tom Cruise mm-hmm. with a Z in an MTV movie special yep. that runs alongside Mission Impossible 2. And I thought it was one of the fun, most fun things about it. Have you seen that little short film? It's eight or ten minutes with John Woo and Tom Cruise. I think if you're going to be a really good stunt double, you have to really become one with the actor. You have to walk like the actor, uh, talk like the actor, uh, legally change your name to sound like the actors. I don't think of myself as a stunt double, really. It's more like I'm a stunt one bull. The way we work is he'll go through sometimes and do do the scene, and uh, it, it, it's helpful for me because it gives me that outside perspective. You know what? I think we have too many kicks in the movie, Tom. I mean, I never say to Woo's face, but I think you got, you know, like how many times can we look at you kicking a guy and then getting kicked in the face? I just, you know what? Kick, kick. Let's call it, you know, let's call it kicking impossible. You go. Let's call it, let's call it kicking impossible. You know, he's harmless. He's harmless. He's harmless. He's... I'm always thinking, I'm always brainstorming, ways to make the fight look better. Uh, come, and Ambrose, he comes jumping yeah, right over the right. hill. John, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, I just, it's a crazy thought, I just got this idea, but uh, what if when Tom jumps off of the bike, and when they're both coming at each other, if right before, and this is just something that just flew in my head here, if he turns to camera and goes, this mission, it just got a hell of a lot more impossibler. Boom, then you do the hit. think about it go away we wanted to get back to the criticisms of mission impossible 6 before we got into the good stuff so i I thought that so thought one thing that thorpe said was that she couldn't even tell the women apart and i said well maybe ethan has a type but they've you know every character's underwritten and sean harris is a ham and peg is insipid in it although i've i've a different perspective on peg's career in the publicity for this one he's happily revealed that he was a high-functioning alcoholic for most of this century. That's during Mission Impossible 3 and all of the early film roles he got off the back of Shaun of the Dead. It's during Hot Fuzz, the first Star Trek, Paul with Greg Matolla, and into the pre-production for the fourth Mission Impossible, during which he recovered. I had no idea. I'd never considered that The World's End was so directly autobiographical in that way. Like anybody, I'm bloody impressed by what Peg's achieved over the last 15 years while sozzled. Two pictures with Spielberg and Spielberg's cameo in Paul. Three Star Treks. Four Mission Impossibles. You know, on a hangover, I barely leave the house. But I don't much care for what he has to work with in these films. He doesn't get to shine in these films. It's, it's, they're probably very fun to make for him and doing some action stuff. Let's well, the, the only other bad because... thing, I just thought it was verging on self-parody, I guess. Like, there's the moment with the... When they're in the the safe house, Alec Baldwin's there, and it turns out that he's really in on it. You think that he's going to shut the IMF down again, but then he's really in on it. And like mm. by that point, everyone's double crossed everyone, you know, at least twice. And it, yeah. it was for for me, it was like a a pale facsimile of how thrilling it was for a twist or a reveal in the original. It was yeah. it was ludicrous. So. But where it scored for me, even though the dialogue seemed odd, I thought the performances were all all fell a bit flat in this one. Um, the, those set pieces are staggering. 
absolutely staggering. I don't know how they'll top it. With then this is the first time I think for, after seeing any mission, I can honestly say, I do not know how they'll top it. You know, there's always a way. Yeah. That helicopter chase was insane. I, 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 uh, yeah. I think so. From the beginning, what are the set pieces? We've got the skydive at the beginning, and falling onto the roof. I felt like we'd seen some of that stuff before. By that point, I was rolling my eyes because they'd just introduced Cavill's character, and then we yeah. had the big jump. And I thought, uh, I've seen him like on skyscrapers and glass roofs before. And in execution, it didn't work because without, I think the term is parallax. Mm. But it's Tom Cruise did that for real. It's called a halo. Kenny told me about it six months ago because he'd read it and said, fuck off. So it stands for high altitude, low open, mm. a halo parachute jump. But it's a parachute jump. You can't tell if it's real or not. Pega remarks something similar in the press for this movie. There's a scene in which he's underwater with a rebreather. And Peg said he literally did that, learned how to do it, found it an uncomfortable experience. And he wondered, no one can see me. I've got the gear on. My face is covered, my character's face is covered, I don't really need to do this. It's not really a problem, but it does mean that for some people, some of the enjoyment of Mission Impossible will be metatextual, going in knowing, wow, he really did that stuff. Mm. That shouldn't... I, I, I don't think a film should rely on that, and so, certainly later action sequences don't, but the Halo jump, I felt, entirely relied upon the audience knowing that Tom Cruise did that for real. Mm. But it doesn't look real, because it's just clouds. Clouds mm. and a, um, and a, a rapidly approaching skyline, which is could easily be it could be a mat, for mm. all I know. It's, yeah, yeah. it's difficult. So so yeah, that's the first one. So then, what do we go to? Uh, oh, uh, the car chases are great. I think he he's oh the, yeah. there's the fist fights in the ballroom. I guess there's the fist fights in the in the in the toilets with Cavill and and the, and the guy. That I mean, that was that was some of the best uh, fist fight work I felt like I'd seen since. Maybe Casino Royale and the Bournes. I don't know. That, yeah. that that was cool. Oh yeah. I got a sense of where everyone was, which which I I thought was great. They weren't. It didn't feel like they were editing around it. it. Felt like it was choreographed and they'd worked it out and then they just went at it basically. Lots of wide yeah. angles. And that at least had, in terms of script writing, that at least had some of the Macquarie pizzazz I was looking for. There were elements around that definitely spoke to the, a kind of a gay experience. Mm within that and uh, Macquarie's done a lot of that in his career there's a pronounced level of smack talk around gay stuff he has an interest and a familiarity with that milieu I want my lawyer <laughs> I'm gonna have your fucking badge cocksucker you know what happens if you do another turn in the joint I... fuck your father in the shower and then have a snack you're gonna charge me dickhead you're gonna wish you never fucking got up this morning asshole because my boyfriend's gonna you up and then after that while he's fucking up your fucking gay uncle over there i'm gonna fucking cut off your cock and mail it to your mother you fucking faggot bitch gay lord fucking bitch how do you like that you like that a lot you fucking faggot you like to ass fuck fontanella fucking baby head fuck you like to fuck baby heads you like to fuck boys he's gonna fuck you in the ass how do you like that he's not even gay but he'll do it just to fuck would you say qualifies you as a donor um, I would say I am a fairly intelligent, uh, good-looking man, physically fit, stable. Heterosexual? Can I ask you something? Sure. Are you a faggot? 
So you asked me if I was heterosexual. I asked you the same question, only I was clear about the answer I was looking for. I just asked if you were heterosexual. Faggot. Just say it. No. Say nothing. it. No, I'm not gonna say that. Don't you think it's funny that if I grab a woman's ass and she punches me, she's fighting for her rights. But if a faggot grabs my ass and I punch his lights out, I'm a homophobe. Let's just move on. It's not what you say anymore, is it? It's all in how you say it. It's an interesting one with Macquarie. I don't think he's gay. He's certainly gay friendly. He has a clear preoccupation with that experience. He continually speaks to the gay experience and to the homosocial experience. He explores it in The Usual Suspects. Lots of gay jokes and gay references there. And setting an action set piece in a men's toilet, that's a definite decision. That's interesting. That's uh, kind of zesty. So I like that as well, not just for the fight scene, which was tremendous, but it did at least retain some of that danger around Macquarie. This, uh, I've just remembered, actually. I found a quote from Macquarie, which I really like, which spoke to how we feel about blockbuster cinema some of the time. And it was, the way I like to describe Hollywood today is this. Everyone wants to make deliverance, but no one wants to be Ned Beatty. I think it's through his relationship with Singer. When we talk about representation in cinema, and in mainstream cinema, and popular cinema, and blockbuster films, I think that Singer and Macquarie and their crew are inserting something interesting just slightly under the radar with The Usual Suspects, with X-Men. X-Men is definitely, you know, that's a oh, civil rights yeah. film, the original one. And I, I think definitely Singer is, uh, it speaks to Singer's own experiences as a, a some, at the time, somewhat closeted gay man. And now, like I, I, you know, I, I think the populace don't know he's gay and that's because he doesn't make quote-unquote gay films. Yeah. But I, I like, I, I want those kind of voices making popular films like Roland Emmerich he's out and proud yeah 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 but watching um Moon 44 and Stargate and Independence Day yeah all of those huge pictures the Patriot uh, those those themes aren't necessarily explored but you know what he brings a he he brings a subversive element to it you watch Independence Day and the leads are a Superman Jew and a black man possibly the biggest action film of the 90s is led by a black man and a Jew yeah Jeff yeah Goldblum He's a computer nerd, and yeah. that's who Roland Emmerich cast as, as the, the, you know, the saviour of the world. That's subversive, that's interesting. Yeah, so what are the other action set pieces that we liked in Mission Impossible 6? Well, I guess we go from there to the, the great setup that, that kicks off the car chase, when he's he then he's, he's dealing with um, the White Widow. She's the arms dealer, because every Mission Impossible needs to have an arms dealer. That's one of the classic things. But yeah, it then turns out that Ethan Hunt of then this sort of mistaken identity... He um he has to essentially try and spring the baddie from the last film, doesn't he? And there's the great, uh, yeah. I love it that he's I love the moment in the trucks and you think how's he going to get out of this? Because they're, they're in the trucks and it's it also does that classic Mission Impossible thing where they're starting to explain what's going to happen next and then you see it happen in in front of you. This happened yeah. in De Palma's first one when they're explaining how they're going to break in to the CIA and um it tells you not how they're going to break in, but it shows you all of the problems, all of the issues they're going to have with the heat sensors and the. Yeah. It's going to detect the slightest, uh, you know, uh, degree of temperature of difference and all this stuff, and um, you're like, how the hell are they going to do this? This is an impossible mission, and they've all at one point or another, I think, touched on that trope, um, and with this one, they did it a couple times. No, sorry, they did it, I think this was the one time they did it, but they said, oh, well, you're going to have to spring the baddie from the last film, and you're going to stop these trucks, and stop his police convoy, then you're going to get out, kill the police, 
uh, every last one of them. And you see all that happening with Ethan there, and then you're gonna get, then you're gonna get him and spring him and bring him back, and we'll broker a deal. How's he gonna get out of this? And that kicks off that fantastic car chase, bike chase with the female uh, MI6 operative. I thought that was, I thought that stuff was 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 great. It was definitely one of the best car chases I've seen in in a long and that time. That scene is that scene as well. The scene which depicts how it could go down with the arms dealers annihilating the entire police force and then Hunt capping the dude on the floor. I liked that in character terms. There wasn't much character stuff in there. You know, maybe we'll come back to this in a couple of years and we'll realise there is lightly embedded throughout. And I wouldn't put it past Macquarie. I really rate Chris Macquarie as a writer and now as a director. I'm excited. that like This is our John McTiernan, I feel. this is a, He's at that level. Because of his relationship with Cruz, we've got this guy and he's he will be, like, he will be mentioned for the new Bond. He'll be in yeah. that conversation. Yeah. Um, along with Christopher Nolan, but Macquarie will be, he's at that, uh, he's at that level now. Well, and Danny like, Boyle's just dropped out, hasn't he? So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought it was going to be Nolan all along because they brought on his cinematographer and his editor, Hoyt ah. Van Hoytema and Lee Smith, respectively. So it made sense that he would follow. But then Boyle, um, we'll, we'll go into that another time because it is quite diverting, and I, it would have been a nice, uh, a kind of a victory lap for Danny Boyle after the Olympics. I know that was six yeah. years ago, but it's one of the greatest. It, truly one of the greatest things that's ever been done in Britain. It's a shame that Danny Boyle's left Bond, but like he's he's too creative for it. He can't work within those constraints. Even Mendes, who's a fair director, I think was um was confined yeah. by Bond and suspected a low point. He specifically cited creative differences as well. I mean that's pretty yeah. telling. To use the classic yeah band term when you when you when a when the beatles yeah. split up you know it's it's such a cliche and i think he did that with a bit of a wink creative differences i have heard that the broccoli's run a tight ship and um yeah. if you if you follow the history of bond which i have from time to time and, and i am fairly into it um you realize that it's a secular thing where again it's a pendulum it swings one way and then it it goes too much the other, and then they have to reinvent it every twelve to fifteen years or so. And um, yeah. I think that they're fiercely protective of that, uh, and and they're very very aware of it. So yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued as to what I'd love to know what Boyle was thinking for that picture. Um, I still want to see Tarantino's Bond, and he does it as a '60s period piece uh, with yeah. um, you know Mad Men style. I'd like to see that. That would be dope. I suppose he's um, he's exercising that impulse with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. Which is set at the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s. And allegedly Star Trek. We'll see. <laughs> I, don't, oh, yeah. I can't believe we're living in this day and age, but apparently that, that may happen. I don't know if Bond is ever going to have depth. I think Mission Impossible, you know, Mission Impossible doesn't have depth. It had, but we, we do need to watch them again. But the, the original one, as we were talking about, the original one had depth of theme. Mm. It was about voyeurism and perspectives, those typical De Palma motifs and interests. And this one, in that scene where Hunt imagines how the deal would go down and conceives having to execute one of the local policemen, Mm. that at least was thematic. That showed a progression in his character where he thinks forward and is reminded that, no, he's not, he, he isn't a merciless killer. And that, I think, informs the rest of his decisions over the course of the film and speaks to the film 
as a whole. By the end, when he reunites with Michelle Monaghan's character, they do talk about they do talk about some interesting things that she couldn't stay with him, knowing all the good that he could do if they were apart. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. For me, the most the most impressive thing is that they had a female character carry over into now a third film because she has a very brief cameo in the last one. Yeah. Or was it the fourth one? Sorry. Yeah, in Ghost Protocol, very brief cameo and they realize they know that they she's in hiding. And then to have her carried over into this one as well, I thought, wow, that's never really happened before. The women of the Mission Impossibles do not carry across, generally speaking. But that that is now yeah. finally starting to change. That first shot was terrible with with uh Cruz and Monaghan oh. marrying again. Yeah. And Sean Harris as their pastor oh that was that sucked yeah from then on terrible from from then on so two things there one it was cheesy poorly executed and i just thought what is this because by the way this got something like a 96 approval rating on rotten tomatoes people around the internet are going crazy for this mission impossible 6 film i honestly apart from these set pieces we'll get back to in a second I thought it was just so poorly executed, and you're right, that opening was, was awful. And the, the, other, the other bad thing about it as well is because immediately I then thought, uh-oh, we have to have really seen the other one. Like, yeah, I know it introduces the fact that he's, he's getting married, he's got a wife, he has a past. You could argue that as a standalone that still works. But where I really think the Mission Impossibles have worked well is that each one is an island and stands, stands in, in and of itself um, yeah. independent of the others. And that's what I love about them. And I think now it's starting to feel like just any other franchise. I watched Ant-Man vs. the Wasp the other day, Fletch. I fell asleep halfway through. <laughs> I woke up in the final scenes at the end. Lex had watched the whole thing. I said, what did I miss? She said, nothing. It was terrible. Because <laughs> I, was, I was watching the opening scenes. Yeah, Paul Rudd made me laugh a couple of times, etc. There was a couple of funny moments. But I realised that there were so many references to Captain America Civil War, the third Avengers, second Avengers. I can't remember. This is my point. And I was like, yeah. I've pretty much seen all of these films at least once, but I can't remember. And beyond that, I also don't care what any of these references are. Like, why is this a film? Didn't get it. Anyway, now the new the missions, the last couple, they're starting to feel a little bit like that. And that's uh, that's concerning me a bit because I think the strength of these films has been their individuality. Yeah, they do stand as a counterpoint to modern franchise blockbuster cinema. You can just turn up to them. I- I'm just worried that the Mission Impossible writer's room now is going to be... It's, it's funny, actually. Even the Brad Bird film at the end... I mean, whether this was intended or throwaway, but at the end of the Brad Bird film, which is four... He gets his next mission, which doesn't often happen. He he gets his mm. next mission at the end. They do it at the end of the De Palma film, the first one, but that's kind of a gag to show that he has now surpassed his um, mentor figure in Jim Phelps, John Voight, because John Voight was on the plane at the beginning getting his mission, and now Ethan Hunt is, even though he thinks he's retired. And the theme then kicks in when um, he realises he's about to get an assignment. So it's a character yeah. moment as much as anything. But in the Brad Bird film, he actually gets his next mission, and they mention specifically the Syndicate, which of course is then where Five picks up, the, the first Macquarie picture picks up immediately with Cruz yeah. jumping onto the plane. Again, a real stunt that probably didn't really need to be real, and because it's clouds and stuff, 
Um, you don't really care if it's real or not. But that was in the trailer, and everyone knew that he really did it, so we mm. were all very impressed. But, yeah, the syndicate, I guess now, that thread's arguably travelled through three films. And, um, yeah, starting to feel... Even the look and the feel of them. You know, this film, the last film, they look and feel the same. And that's a shame. I didn't like the look of it. There was something about the... When I say film grain, I obviously don't mean film because it's no longer necessarily shot on film. But uh, there was an odd texture, especially to the scenes in London in the shootout with Baldwin under the railway arches. Very strange. Ropey is the way I would describe it. Come back to Henry Cavill, having dismissed his acting chops earlier on, I think he was perfectly cast because he looks exactly as he should do, a prick. Mm. And then once we've we've been on the journey with them, and it was a long film as well. It was, yeah, it's too long. By too the long. time of that chopper chase, Cavill leaning out of the helicopter, holding the, the minigun, screaming and ya- and yowling and scowling, that looking deranged like Jesse Ventura in Predator. I thought this is superb. Yeah. This is why I've come to the cinema. That's. And I've rarely felt that energised in in recent times. Probably uh, Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah. A couple of years ago. But that him in that sequence was terrific. And Cruz in that sequence was terrific. And then the fight. It, it didn't just work. It was stuff, it was stuff we've never seen before. Mm. Yeah, that is why you're there. And there's no reason it needs to take 150 minutes to get there. Whereas the first film does it all in... Oh, uh, 90 minutes, 110 or something. I can't remember. Yeah, it's short. Yeah, it's under two hours. Mm. And it gets a lot in. I liked the motorcycle chase, but I, I didn't like it as much as the car chase. The motorcycle chase, one problem I had with it was that now, as an audience, we know that it's cruised the whole time. But that doesn't mean that everything around him is real. And then the presumption is that backgrounds and environments are CG augmented when he's riding the wrong way around the roundabout I didn't know if that was real or not yeah like the tree I knew he was yeah. I knew he was, yeah I oh, sorry yeah the, the round of fucking the roundabout Fletch the, <laughs> the busiest uh, most iconic roundabout in all of Europe <laughs> I just looked at it and I leaned to Thorpe and said they do that joke in European vacation with Chevy <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think the Simpsons has done that as well yeah 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 um uh, so I know he's on the bike, but I don't know if the rest is real. But then in in other points, during, so that's why I liked uh, other sections of the motorcycle chase and of the car chase sections in which the camera moves in closer to him, and you can see, yeah, regardless of the speed he's travelling, this is a Paris street. Essentially, this is all real. The chopper stuff was terrific. The chopper the, stuff the is fantastic. I loved every second of of, of that. The, the, the ending is. The last, you know, half hour, forty minutes of it are, are wicked, and this, yeah. th- this is it now. I'm just, I'm just a little concerned that we're getting to a point where, in an international market, the way that a film has to appeal to all of these different demographics now, you've got to do well in China. I'm just a bit concerned that the action stuff in the missions is second to none. How they're going to top this, I will never know, I, and I mean that sincerely. But I'm just concerned that now, you know, a lot of the other just <laughs> the niceties of filmmaking. I'm just concerned that 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 may fall by the wayside, and they're going to start to look and feel like just any other franchise. It also dawned on me that this 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 is all intrinsic with Bad Robot, isn't it? Because the the films really began to get their continuity with the the JJ 
one, the the third one, J.J. Abrams, uh, yeah. Bad Robot produced third one, when he gets married, he's going to retire. That's the thread that, to a, a lesser or greater extent, has pulled all the way through the Bad Robot productions, which it's been ever since. And um, I'm not, I haven't followed the news enough over the past few years to know. But this kicked off, uh, it was Mission Impossible 3 that kicked off Abrams' relationship with Paramount Pictures. And then they roped Bad Robot in to do the uh, Star Trek reboot. So JJ's just uh, raking in the cash for all this stuff. You know, they're producing a lot of these elements, um, you know, his at his company. So it's probably happy days for Mr. JJ Abrams. Uh, the, the films the, the films may start to feel a little bit more like TV shows with film movie budgets, but one man will always win. One man is never lost, and that is J.J. Abrams. <laughs> one problem with modern blockbuster cinema is that the set pieces feel interchangeable among franchises, which in this case is hardly surprising, seeing as J.J. Abrams has directed a Mission Impossible, two Star Treks, and two Star Wars. One of the most prevalent criticisms of the third Star Trek film was that its set pieces could have been in Fast and the Furious. They probably could have been in a Mission Impossible as well. They probably could have been, yeah. And and that's what's being lost. Um, it's idiosyncrasy and rendering everything a little bit bland. Midnight Runs, one of my favourite pictures. Charles Grodin and Robert De Niro spend a lot of time together bickering, talking and get to know one another so that when they're in those situations of jeopardy, when the action, when the action sequences kick in, as an audience, we're engaged, we're invested in them. I do wonder if that's being lost. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I honestly thought that the the banter was going to be a little bit uh, more entertaining in this one. So maybe on some level, you know, the warmth of the characters that you mentioned earlier isn't quite there in the way that maybe it has been. But what is intriguing to me, Fletcher, is that we seem to be standing alone in a sea of uh, unanimous um, praise for this film and um, a lot of people are saying it's the best mission ever and you know the approval rating it seems to have gotten on the the the, the, the uh, aggregate websites like Rotten Tomatoes etc um, yeah. it's through the roof so we seem to be standing alone uh, I going back to that first Mission Impossible film the Brian De Palma one the character of the filmmaker was very much there and I did feel like the characters were far more vulnerable. I was on the edge of my seat throughout, and that includes what rewatching it for the fifteenth or so time last night. Mm. So maybe, maybe you're onto something. And on a much lighter note, I did forget that the first one had fe- featured quite prominently Liverpool Street Station, which is my and always has been my gateway to London from uh, from East Anglia. And uh, it was great to see. Um, obviously, I, I'm down there quite often now when I go to see a lot of my, my London clients uh, regularly. And to see Liverpool Street Station in the mid-90s, underneath the, uh, the, the stairs, you had all of the payphone boxes, British Telecom payphone boxes. That made me um, snigger. Up where I think the lush cosmetics is now, there seemed to be a quaint, London Tea Room, where they're having <laughs> Ethan Hunt and John Voight are having a conversation, and uh, yeah. you know, the plot is being revealed to us. So th- I, that was quaint, and even better, the train timetable, which uh, these days, of course, is digital, uh, was uh, was back then. Obviously, the rolling uh, kind of physical um, 
timetable that, that would flip over to give you your train time. And yeah, as he, yeah. as Tom Cruise is looking up at the clock to try and ensure that, because he knows the IMF are going to be tracking him and he wants them to know he's in London, but he does not want them to know where. Um, <laughs> he's looks He looks up and underneath the clock, the next train is going to Norwich, of course, where I'm, where I'm currently living. So... Yeah, it was a little shout out for East Anglia and Norwich. So yeah, it was good. Uh, the uh, it was good to see Liverpool Street Station feature so prominently, and I'd forgotten about that. But the character, yeah. the, the character of the filmmaker, the character of the characters, is perhaps more prominent in that first one. And yeah, generic's probably the word. And like you alluded to earlier, yeah, to have Benji say, "This gives me the creeps." Yeah, I'm pretty sure I heard them say that. You know, in Thunderbirds and that when I was a kid. Like, the, the, surely yeah. we've gotten a bit better by this point and in fact that was a British interpretation of what an American audience would want exported to them as well back in the 60s so um, yeah maybe there's something to be said there Rough Edges smoothed out I like Rough Edges that's what makes cult cinema I know these pictures can't be cult but if we're to love them if we're to truly love them then they need those Rough Edges they need characters going back to Die Hard they need characters like Dwayne T. Robinson and the newscasters with the bit where he says Helsinki Syndrome this is the thing, in Mission Impossible 6, there is levity. There is levity, there's buoyancy, and it's at its best when it's not moving with the forced austerity of an all-seeing, all-controlling baddie. Now, that was done in Mission Impossible 3, but Abrams pulled it off with excitement in a different era in blockbuster cinema. Post-Dark Knight, the gloom and despondency, commitment to duty and honour has been all-pervasive across blockbuster cinema. And when Mission Impossible as a franchise and in this sixth one falls into that arena, that's where it loses my interest. It's far more interesting when it emphasises the team dynamic and enjoyment of what we're watching rather than, and Bond does it as well, rather than rather than a punishing grind of duty, service, honour, the true cost to these characters of living these lifestyles and serving their nation. Yeah, Mission Impossible is my last access point for blockbuster cinema other than Christopher Nolan. I do look forward to these films when they come out. I like that they're not regular. Again, I think the wait between films this time was maybe too short. I like having five years in between a mission, you know? I I, I bet that might not happen again, but it's the last franchise for me that I, you know, outside of Star Wars, uh, and I suppose to to a different extent Star Trek... It's the last franchise that I uh, enjoy. The last two Jurassic Parks have uh, that's that's gone. There's there's no point me yeah. even thinking about those anymore. And um, this this one, uh, the Mission Impossible's. I think because I don't ha- you don't have to be a advocate of them. They don't ask a lot of you. I I quite enjoy that. And um, they they've come along every few years, demanding very little of me. Apart yeah. from a couple of hours of my time. They're still your bag, man. You love them. I really do. From from that first one, from those opening scenes with the team, to the shock and the awe that I experienced in the cinema as a nine-year-old when the team died and it became a Tom Cruise film. Uh, it's always been there throughout my life. I've aged, I've aged with it. It's been fun. And uh, how they're going to top this one, I do not know. I have no idea because the set pieces were staggering and they were fantastic. And I did enjoy them very much. Uh, Notes for next time. Please give us a little bit more character. And stop 
this is a general rule to Hollywood. Stop on this 150, 160 minutes rubbish. I have no time <laughs> for it whatsoever. If you, like yeah. The Last Jedi is one of the main criticisms I had of that as well. There's no point. You know, I can't knock these back in home video as regularly as I'd like to because I have to look at my watch and forward plan as to what time it's going to finish. And I can't be bothered with that. There's a tremendous bloat is something that we can say about popular Hollywood blockbuster cinema. Not only of the cast, as you say, Fast and Furious picking up an extra cast member here and there where there's like eight or nine leads now and Michelle Rodriguez comes back from time to time and Jordana Brewster. So there's a bloat in cast, a bloat in mythology, a bloat in the length of the franchise typified by Twilight and Harry Potter both getting two instalments out of the final book and a bloat in running times also. All these pictures are going well over two hours. You can probably accomplish what's necessary in such a series in just 120 minutes. Now, our favourite Jim Cameron very rarely did that, but at least on the initial release of Aliens, for instance, cut out 17 minutes and put it back in for the special edition. Did the same for The Abyss, did the same for Terminator 2. So there were shorter versions of these. He understood it wasn't commercial or even necessary to include all the junk that he would have liked to optimally. Now... The last three Fast and the Furious pictures, that's cars. It's just cars and stunts. They're all well over two hours. Pirates of the Caribbean, the last one of that was over two hours. At World's End was over two and a half hours. Is this Lawrence of Arabia? Is this Dr. Shivago? Although, having said that, we are rather running long ourselves. Our Mission Impossible may finally be drawing to a close, but uh, I'm sure we'll return uh, with some further thoughts on it in the future. Um, so, yeah, let's. Uh, I, I wait with bated breath for the next one, maybe in five years' time. We hope we've given you plenty to think about as we've considered more than two decades of Missions Impossible, from big screen television adaptation to stuttering would-be franchise to its current incarnation as Summer Action Spectacular. Please share your thoughts on our Facebook and on our Instagram and on our website. Our website is onesensationalshot.com and leave us reviews on iTunes and Spotify. Next month, we'll be back at the gates of the Electronic Labyrinth to explore John McTiernan's Predator and Shane Black's The Predator. We hope that you'll be there with us. Until then, this is Fletcher Wharton and Luke Littleboy signing off. Luke, we already used Schifrin at the beginning. No, not this one, Lars. Or we can take us to court. Fuck right off. Yeah, all right.